Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And Erin is taking some time off from the pod. She has a lot going on, y'all. I mean, this girl does a lot. So I will be your host for the next little bit. And um, Amy, just (laughs) to be, you know, just to be a prick decided to go on vacation or is going on vacation soon Look, <laughs> i took no time uh, off last week so no, no i will be taking my time and going on holidays listen i am but you're gonna have fun without me no i won't amy you, you will <laughs> i will not it's warming up the birds are chirping so where are you off to i mean i'd rather not say okay i like to keep some things private true you'll see on instagram i was just about me. to say <laughs> I was like, I'll just wait for the Instagram yeah, story. He's a mystery alive. Now. Okay, cool. Cool. But you are living the country, right? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you don't see. Seem- I'm also superstitious. I don't want anyone to give me the evil eye. Oh, fair. You know? Fair. So uh, should we do your congratulations now or later? Because <laughs> you were on CBC News World on, well, yesterday. Today is Sunday. Uh, April 7th, that's the day we're recording. Amy was on CBC News World on Saturday, basically all day, as they run these things multiple times. And she was interviewed for um, about the SNC-Lavalin scandal and Trudeau. And we will put up a link for you guys so you guys can watch it because it was excellent. Oh, thank so, you. So how was that? Um, yeah, it was it was a fun and funny experience so they were very lovely um the host uh uh michael Sh- um Sipario? i can I'm not i think sure, it I'm is i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it right he was really lovely um i mean it's a it's nice that they're giving coverage and voice there was another panel earlier in the day with with some other awesome feminists uh you know farrakhan tanya telga who like so i feel like cbc was making an effort to actually yeah. like let folks who have some roots in some feminist communities kind of speak as opposed to, you know, and, and respond to the Candace Bergens of the world who are trying to make this faux feminism thing happen. Yeah. Um, stop so. trying to make it happen, girl. <laughs> Just stop. Yeah. So I'm glad they weren't like calling up, you know, conservative so-called feminists to like <laughs> respond. So like props to them for the, the insight. I yeah. guess. I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, but those interviews are tricky. I mean, it's four minutes. Like, we're used to rambling on for two hours on yeah. this podcast. So it was. Don't yeah. think I got it all across, but we'll try to wedge some some thoughts in today. <laughs> yes. And by all means, um, my week was. Oh, wait. I did something this week. Right. So I was on a diversity and inclusion panel at. Um, in Canada, so in oh, yeah. the middle of technology Ottawa, and uh, just talking to business owners and companies about their not only diversity policy, but the process and um, basically what they, what I, I think it, it's more like an intro to say, look, 
uh, you're not the experts. Mm -hmm. So seek some expertise. And speaking of expertise, we are beginning to provide said diversity inclusion expertise. So we will give you all of our contact information at the end. But if you feel that your company or if you are a business owner or part of an organization that could use some insights into diversity recruitment and training and stuff like that, shout, give us a shout. Anyway, we're going to keep this short and sweet because, I don't know, I'm not used to doing that. So, <laughs> first up, let's get into it. First up, uh, the Ford government is planning to cut 3,475 teaching jobs over the next four years in a move that will save $851 million, according to the Education Ministry memo obtained by the Toronto Star. Some 1,558 full-time teaching jobs will be gone by this fall, which goes up to 2,177 by 2020-2021, the memo says. For the school year 21-22, the year after, a total of 2,915 jobs will have been phased out for a total, which brings us to that total that we cited earlier, of 3,475 jobs by the fall of 2022. Well, I guess everybody will be dumb and stupid then. Anyway, <laughs> as the government wants it, apparently. Anyway, the government has stated that the cuts will come through attrition alone and are in response to declining enrollment, which I have yet to see evidence of. Educators, students, parents, and their allies spread out across the lawn at Queen's Park in a massive protest Saturday saying the cuts target the most vulnerable students and threaten lasting damage to Ontario's community. Saturday's rally for education follows a series of other contentious moves by the province, including an increase in the cap on average class sizes in elementary and secondary schools, a requirement that students take more online courses and an overhaul to the provincial of the provincial autism program. On Thursday, more than 100,000 students walked out of class at more than 600 schools. Education Minister Lisa Thompson said about the students' rally, the government would not be giving into, quote, union stunts, unquote, while Premier Doug Ford suggested that union leaders were behind it. So, what the fuck? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. I was just reading a tweet from Lisa Thompson where she says, uh, costs in education sector have been rising while enrollment and academic quality have been falling with more than half of grade six students, for example, failing to meet the provincial math st standard in math. And so it's like, OK, cool. So you fired their teachers. <laughs> yeah. And you make their class sizes bigger yeah. where you tell them it makes them more resilient. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were saying for the average school of uh, 800 students, they're, they'll be going from 45 to 36 teachers. Um, so it's not in, it's not insignificant on a school by school basis. Um, and, and, you know, we're saying fired because that's really what it is, whether through attrition or otherwise, these are jobs that are being um, eliminated and, and in a, in a different way restructured. Um, so I, I think that that needs to be called for what it is. I think it's uh, especially funny how, uh, 
Doug Ford and and the uh, conservatives or PCs are referring to, you know, using the union organized unions are, are as a scare tactic. <laughs> like what a straw a man word. bullshit. Like that's gaslighting. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say that. I think it's a deliberate effort to uh, break collective will and you know demonize unions and 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 part of it is that the you know they the struggle will be now in terms of the sector in Ontario um, is that a lot of bargaining units including uh, some some of the teachers I don't know if all of them but most teachers unions are going into bargaining with the government Um, and this is part of it. They're going to paint the teachers unions at, and, you know, their wage, whether their wage proposals or the current salaries and the collective agreements as being the cause of, um, you know, uh, a bloated public service. Uh, so this is all part of that, which I think is really uh, gross when we know that, you know, a lot of teacher, well, one in a lot of parts of the province, um, there are some teacher shortages in other parts of the province. There are a need for teachers in very specific areas um, to you know, areas of teaching that need to be targeted. Um, and, you know, there's so much that teachers do and provide to students inside and outside the classroom in terms of extracurriculars, other programming that um, is put on by schools. Um, and all of that is going to be lost once you have workloads increasing and class sizes increasing. Uh, and and uh, no doubt the Doug Ford government is going to be looking at either wage cuts or making, you know, very piddly offers to teachers in, in the coming years. Oh, definitely. And didn't Doug Ford, wasn't one of his promises that he wouldn't cut jobs in the public sector um, in the public sector, yeah. So, but that, I think that's why they refer to it as attrition. Mm-hmm. So it's I noticed that. Yes, that they don't replace them, so it's not a layoff or or what have you. But I think that's a um, pretty bunk idea of, of. I mean, that's just that spin, really, at the end of the day, because the job itself is being eliminated as a position, right? So. Exactly, exactly. It seems to me that. Um, Okay, so let's <laughs> let's just understand that we are not even a year into this government. So let's put that into perspective. What can come after this? I I don't know. How they really sell this? I I really don't know. I I'm really struggling to figure out who voted for Doug Ford at this point. Like and would anybody admit it? Like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm really impressed with the numbers of the student walkouts and the um, just general activism, um, you know, around even the the, the cuts to autism funding was uh, showed some of the real power and organizing in the disabilities community. And um, I don't mean it's a very blossoming time for for different kinds of activism. It's and I hope that that counter narrative is like, yeah, yeah. will we'll take hold. But I mean, the folks who support Doug Ford, I, I think they're still out there. Like, there's so many people to whom the message of, uh, go, you know, government overruns, government debt and overspending and, and taxpayer, quote unquote, taxpayer issues do resonate. And I think that's because we have devalued public services in this country time and again. We devalue the work of public servants specifically. Um, and, you know, it's it's like bureaucracy and 
civil service are punchlines mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Um, and even Kathleen Wynne camp- campaigned on, uh, you know, the NDP being worse for unions or worse for workers than Doug Ford at one point. And, you know, like just kind of propping up these narratives that there is an you can overspend on these types of areas of work or these types of um, industries uh, being that is being the public sector. Right. Um, So I think that's what's most damaging. And that's what's but that's been happening for a long time. So it it makes it a lot easier for Doug Doug Ford's statement to take hold. Well, yeah. And that's been a deliberate devaluation by people who want a a smaller state who for people (laughs) no let me let me rephrase they don't want a smaller state they just don't want to spend money in certain areas because when it comes to things like national defense they have all the money in the world to enlarge to enlarge the state and to me it it it's particularly a class warfare issue um, because the people who make the rules and the decisions in this in this province, the people who really run this province, aren't aren't sending their kids to public school, and they're sending their kids to private school. So it's basically a two tier system where people who are loyal to the party of a certain socioeconomic background, um, a certain you know, class and gender and race and all that, get one set of services that they pay for and elite services. And the rest of us are supposed to apparently um, get the crumbs from off the table kind of thing. And those crumbs are getting smaller and um, less numerous, let's say. So I think there's there's an interesting sort of like realignment of the way we even think about how these things are structured. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will pick up from your uh, student activism. I'm really, really, it, the kids will be all right. <sighs> Y'all, I'm just really impressed with these kids. Just so impressed that they are not, just going to sit by and let decisions be made for them about their education and not only the their education um one thing that we're probably not going to talk about is is the period thing and and the in bc and how activism has worked to to the point where you know kids are getting sanitary supplies at school provided to them I mean, that doesn't come without activism. Mm-hmm. Um, the Daughters of the Vote this week were just so, f- oh my gosh, like I almost cried. Like I think I was like tearing up because mm-hmm. it was just so beautiful how they were not going to um, succumb to play the role in this performance that everybody expected them mm-hmm. to play. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thought that was empowering. Mm-hmm. It it impressed me to like it inspired me and yes you can be inspired by youth um so like to me one one of the silver linings of all this is the is that is the fact that everybody's an activist now Mm -hmm. yeah so in terms of online classrooms and online learning um 
do we even know do we have like is there anything out there that would make us think that online classwork or online learning is equivalent to classroom learning in uh, at these levels of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some value in online learning if that's suited to your needs and your way of learning and, and a pace that you, you know, might be suitable for you. But to say that online learning is the new default to classroom learning, I think is really uh, flawed. Um, because you take away so much of what people get in education, which is actually being in a room and discussing ideas with other people and, and engaging um, in, in work in a different way um, and, then per, and then having the social engagement outside of class hours. And to be um, stimulated by somebody who is, can teach you something yeah, and well, can expand your mind. For sure. But I mean, I think online education can, can do that for some people depending on learning ability. Like I don't mm. want to discount it entirely. No, right? no, and neither am um, I. So I think it could be suited. But yeah. um, to, say, to put that as a default, um, and then there's been a trend towards this for a, like some some time i mean it but it, i don't think it's any different than any other form of um automation that is now you know substituting for labor that's a um, great i think point. we really yeah. need to like ask ourselves and that's not to say obviously online courses have other facets to them they're you know, someone's creating the curriculum there are people grading on the other side it's not necessarily all automated quote unquote mm-hmm. but what you get paid per class and and how people are compensated for that work um the fact that it it removes you know many uh, permanent positions um i think that is really damaging Mm -hmm. and that's also um you know yeah i think that's a huge cause for concern for for labor in general but how is this going to you know the the immediate people who i would think would be affected by this would be they're I, I'm not sure on what side this lands on the accessibility issue. Like, how accessible are these courses going to be? Well, Don't some know. are already offered, right? So there's been online education for some time in the yeah. Ontario public school system. But the other thing, too, is what if, like, what kind of sort of broadband internet access do you need? Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and that, to me, especially if you have videos on this online learning... That, to me, is a huge intersectional issue. Um, People who are in rural ridings or ridings where there isn't as much access to to the type of internet that might be necessary mm-hmm. with with the with the capabilities, mm-hmm. I just wonder how they're going to adjust for that mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. but only time will tell yeah, I mean, I don't think they're that concerned with it. they're just looking to make savings where they can. Uh, so I don't know that the rollout is this going to be the same across the province for different types of programs. But I mean, the bigger, co- like they're not concerned with, uh, you know, learning abilities. They're con- like that. I, I'm just saying, I think I can appreciate that in some cases it might be beneficial, mm-hmm. but that's clearly not their concern because they're cutting like teacher's aids and, you know, autism programs and other things mm-hmm. that function within the schools to help, uh, students who have disabilities, uh, you know, manage and learn in, in, in ways that are like suited to their needs in an accommodated way. They don't give a shit about that. They're removing all of those types of, of programs and ameliorative programs. So, I mean, so is this just about the money? Yeah. Well, it's definitely not about the education. I don't know what kind of <laughs> educational improvements you're going to get. 
Um, and I mean, even just the fact that they use the standardized exams in mathematics as, as the, well, the marker yeah. when that's been widely yeah. um, disputed, Discounted, yeah. discounted and disputed. And yeah. there's so many countries that are moving away from standardized exams and we're still kind of fixated on them in Ontario. Um, I think that's really troubling. So they're not, I don't think that that's really their interest mm-hmm. um, is actually furthering the academic success of anyone in uh, in schools and the, even this idea that enrollment is decreasing I mean enrollment's increasing in the tr- greater Toronto area will probably be uh, you know hit by by these cuts just as much as any other part of the province um, so I just want to see some evidence for these claims uh, I think I think it's true that there's been dips in enrollment in some parts of the province but so what but like on average I mean we use like like three thousand four four hundred jobs worth. Like that's my. Question. I just think it's irrelevant whether or not enrollment has dipped. It's always better to have more teachers. Whether or not it's true, and I do believe it, it might well be in many parts of the province, especially in rural areas. It's increasing in in the Greater Toronto area, and I'm sure in other um, more urban, um, dense like more dense populated parts of the province but even if that is the case i think it's largely irrelevant um because based on their math they're increasing class sizes so that's necessarily a decline in the quality of education um and whether or not you know you have a decline in enrollment does not necessarily mean we can't then improve education by now having more teachers than we had in the past right um to facilitate new types of learning new programs or frankly just maintaining the old ones with smaller class sizes better attention better needs um you know better attention to different students needs um and again like it's all these other programs like you know teachers do so much that is outside of their compensated work whether it's doing drama classes or like or, or drama productions in the evening hours or coaching teams or music or whatever else like this is this is work that you know is also a part of the thing that we'll be losing when these uh these jobs are 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 lost right so there's there's so many facets to what determines quality of education the idea that they're uh just looking at standardized test results i think is just that's troubling to me that yeah that is extremely troubling to me yeah it's, and i also don't necessarily buy it yeah um and we have seen in the past that with higher um sorry, with smaller class sizes, there have been better results on standardized exams, love them or hate them. Um, but that, that, but that at least that helps kind of get students there, you know, but if I, you know, I think I'm not in the minority when I say standardized exams are in and of themselves deeply no, I don't problematic. Think you, I don't think you are. I th- there has been so much talk about, especially if you look at the SATs just on their own, rather, you know, as sort of like the, you know, an example of this, there have been so many studies talking about the bias of tests um, and how the test changes the way kids are educated in a way that is more geared towards the test rather than them actually learning. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I... I'm just glad that I'm I'm not in this generation. I know this sounds like really bad, but it just seems to me like this is going to have some serious ramifications in our workforce, in the, you know, 
we always like to say how high, highly skilled our workforce is mm-hmm. while we're, we're cutting them off at the knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of this comes from nowhere, essentially. Like, you know, the government says that they've consulted with uh, students and parents and there's nowhere in those consultations that anyone was like, yeah, you know, it'd be great firing all the teachers. <laughs> Not that that's exactly what they're doing, but... I don't Basically. think I don't think that was yeah. ever proposed in these uh, consultations. I think what people are asking for is pr- reviews of cr- key areas of curriculum. Yeah, you know, reexamining st- the standardized examination like system that we have that that weeds people in and out. Uh, looking at the split in uh, in high schools in Ontario where the uh, streaming, uh, you know, college applied university level classes that ki- also cut you off mm-hmm. uh, before you have a chance to, to get, you know, going as a young person. You're streamed into these uh, classes and we know that those have been applied in a discriminatory manner. Definitely. Um, there's a lot that's been written on what that's meant for especially black youth in Ontario. So it's not like there aren't things in the education system that have been crying out for reform um and all this ain't, of, it. This ain't <laughs> it and all of them uh re- probably require a lot more labor like physical p- labor of full-time employment and you know again just to add like there are so many um an increasing precarity too in teaching in some parts of the province yeah. with, with either part-time um or you know t- the re- reliance on um uh, either whether substitute teachers or, or other things that where you can find maybe ways to have more structured or permanent bank of, of people or restructuring how that kind of work is, is doled out instead of saying, well, now we're eliminating what were indeterminate permanent positions, right? And the, the security that would have come with those. Um, so, you know, if you're going to restructure the workforce or there are needs el- elsewhere. I think you just hit on a great point is that, Essentially, what they're doing is they're restructuring the workforce in a way where, like you said earlier, um, in a way where automation is number one. Mm-hmm. It's it's the default now. Mm-hmm. And anything above that, you're going to have to pay for. So, and, you know, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's coming. And what that's going to do in terms of outcomes in terms of structural inequities is just going to be uh, i i don't i don't even know what to say it's just it's it's going to be horrific so anyway after that lovely note let's move on (laughs) it only gets worse from it only gets worse (laughs) quebec Religious minorities in Quebec are reeling after the right-leaning government of, of Francois Legault proposed the law, the law last week, Bill 21, which would prohibit teachers and other public sector workers in positions of authority, including lawyers and police officers, from wearing religious symbols while working, regardless of whether the symbols are, quote, visible or not, end quote. Current public sector workers would get an exemption, though only as long as they stay in the same position within the same organization, according to the bill. This means that a teacher, for example, could not change schools or be promoted if she refused to take off her headscarf. The premier said that the proposed law is necessary to uphold the separation between state and religion, and now 
the government is saying citizens who see municipalities or school boards failing to apply the province's proposed secular dress code can call the police to have the law enforced. What the fuck? I just like, I feel like that is exactly the title. What the fuck? Wow. Yeah, I mean, they found a way to uh, put into a bill the barbaric practices hotline that it was basically around. Thank you, uh-huh. Stephen Harper. Although, I mean, that whole. Th- Let's be honest. Somebody else would have come up with it. I feel like it's not like, but still, that's basically mon- what yeah, it is. I mean, the idea of, well, I mean, it's hard to know where to even begin with. I this, know. But just another huge attack on labor, uh, for starters, uh, an attack on teachers in particular. There are so many, um, you know, difficult to hear stories of young women, uh, Muslim women especially, who are coming out of teacher's college in Quebec and saying like, oh, what do I do now, right? Um, where where can I go from here? Uh, and what's been especially uh, frustrating is how um, the government has spun what this bill is. I mean, to talk, referring to it as, as a bill to re, you know, uh, refocus secularism um it's been brought by their minister of, of diversity and inclusion or some some bullshit title oh my you know God. it's just like they've really appropriated the language and kind of turned it on this its head in this like a really perverse way oh my god um so that like leaves a real sting but i mean it's it's so easy to see through what it actually means um you know they've said that they would apply the notwithstanding clause to the legislation there are a few uh, you know, folks debating what the loopholes around that are. I don't think we want to really delve too far into that because at the end of the day, what matters most is that the, one, this is this is out there now um, as a policy mission for the government, if not a legislative, you know, a, a legislative goal that they they've set. Um, they're inviting essentially you know racist acts to visit upon people in an already very i'm going to say it racist province in terms of systemic and structural racism as this bill is exactly the perfect example of quebec Um, is racist and has had a history of violence right especially the muslim community yes yes i mean the the timing and the placement of this bill um i think is um it's it's going to be devastating. Um, and what it what it tells people, especially students, and you think about like young people going to school and getting educated, is that they don't belong there either. And I'm talking about, you know, folks who are from, who have, uh, you know, religious values that they, you know, want to uh, put on display or, or wear or observe publicly or even privately, because this bill isn't just about visible symbols of observance or religion. It's even about you have a, you know, a necklace with, you know, a saying, a religious saying, and no one can see it, or you have, you know, a hidden. Um, so what are they going to uh, do? Strip search people now? Well, you know, if, some, if your colleague sees you, they can rat you out. Yes. That's what they're saying. And, yes. And that creates a, like that in and of itself creates a culture of fear. Um, and, uh, you know, it takes the policing that already happens between the white majority and most parts of this country, uh, you know, against the, practices and actions and speech and dress of racialized people Mm -hmm. and is now giving it legitimacy 
under yes. law yes. to to go and and police and act. So I mean, it's it, I think that's just devastating, like for communities, but also like the broader society. Mm-hmm. Um, to to can I I can't even I I so put into words. One of the things that some one of the it's not just about public sector employees. Mm-hmm. If you think this is going to stay within certain confines, you are sadly mistaken. Second of all, whatever happens in marginalized communities, whatever kind of state-sponsored violence, state-sponsored surveillance, state-sponsored whatever, eventually bleeds out mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. regular society. Mm-hmm. And when I say regular society, I mean like, Okay, the dominant society, let's say. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say, let me scratch regular because that gives a certain connotation that they're the default and right mm-hmm. and, and everything should be um, contrasted with them. Anyway, um, so that's so today it's Muslims and religious, uh, um, religious wear, let's say, um, uh, icons or whatever. <laughs> Tomorrow, it's um, disabled people for a reason. The next day, it's it's people who live in a certain area of town. The next day, it it just builds upon this type of discrimination. Structural discrimination builds. Well, I just think what it does is strips away, and I mean it does in legally speaking strip away. Um, you know the arguments around uh, discrimination, anti-discrimination measures in private work, in the private workforce. So you, I, I could see folks arguing that, you know, why the go- that they should hold the same values as the government of secularism and enforce these rules in their own workplaces. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know that how far that argument will get, but you know that people are going to now try it um, to emulate by the lead of the government. Uh, but just even the idea, I mean, that's the, the, just the ludicrousness of a province that is, mind you, aside from the, you know, quiet revolution, still very much um, draped in Christianity and Catholicism at every turn from street names to symbols within the legislature, within, you know, other public spaces with, you know, the organizing of our society is inherently Christian, Judeo-Christian. And to, you know, to say that there is some sort of blank, like secularism uh, that can be enforced, I, I think it's just it's so hypocritical it is. Uh, in, in a province like Quebec in particular. It is very um, hypocritical. Because it's secularism for, for some. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't anticipate that they're going to police someone wearing a, a cross, uh, you know, a cross pendant um, or, you know call out uh the school names that 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 they have or you know start removing street signs uh, in the mm-hmm. name of secularism right right um i think what another well there's so much that's scary about this but the fact that um current public sector workers have to be in the same position within the same organization mm-hmm. to keep their religious freedom mm-hmm. Uh, especially from people who talk mm-hmm. about freedom all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Freedom, mm-hmm. freedom, freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what you're creating is an economic ghetto based on religion. That's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So which which has 
further ramifications into the economic progress of minorities. Yeah. yeah. If that's not discrimination. To that, to that extent, that's, yeah, no, that's a thousand percent true. Yeah. I get one in every now and then. No, no, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean, yeah. there, the other piece of it too is uh, there's also a provision in the legislation that I believe says uh, something about the essentially folks serving in the legislature at a certain level um, have to also uh, not wear religious symbols. And I think that... Uh, is a spe- that's a conversation that's that's interesting to have now that we also have our first uh, not only racialized leader of a federal political party, but someone who is wearing um, a religious a re- symbol, a religious yeah, religious yeah. garb and yeah. in in the form of uh, his tur- a turban. Um, and you know, if he was elected as a leader in Quebec, probably couldn't couldn't serve, or would have to again, quote unquote, choose. Well, the inter there is an intersection there where, with Jagmeet Singh being the head of the NDP and the N- NDP losing their seat, or lo- well, per- I, potentially losing a lot of their seats in Quebec. And and I mean that was our that's what many argued was the reason they lost their seats. The last run was the niqab debate that mm-hmm. you know 1.0 or whatever yeah I mean, this is actually probably the 10th iteration yeah of this yeah. debate that we've had but um and the ndp's you know a bit more quote-unquote principled response than elsewhere was was some people argued what got them you know a little <laughs> some I mean, frankly kind of eviscerated in quebec mm-hmm. um I'm kind of glad that that's the position that ultimately was taken, although it seems slow to start. But then, yeah. you know, they carved out a space there. I'm much happier to that, at least that there is a party that can kind of stand on some extent those principles and now is living those principles. Yeah. But it really does ha- like call make you have to consider like who is, uh, you know, who gets to lead, who gets access to power, yeah. um, who gets to teach our children, who gets to, you know, and where where do um, racialized and religious uh, folks see themselves reflected in society, and it's not a secular society where you are when you are effectively disbarred from participating in key um, aspects of it. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not the last dance with this, and um, you know, when I the funny thing is when I you know I'd spoken to people who had voted for Francois Legault and they're like, oh well, we just voted for him for the stance on anti-corruption. I'm like, really? Where's that legislation? Because that's not the first thing they went for. They went for um, discrimination first, and like I don't know, I don't know how people can defend that. They will, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure how they can defend that with a straight face. Sure. Um, the other thing, too, is this, is that, you know, this is what right-wing governments do. Um, I don't think that that is particularly off or talking out of turn. This is what they do. This is how, this is how they behave. And... Um, you know, given the precarious situation of the federal election, we might be getting another right wing government. So um, brace yourselves, people, is all I'm saying. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of brace yourselves. Mm. Uh, no, the never Alberta mind. election. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I not even I will we'll talk about that in some way, shape or form. But this country is going right. It's already there. And all we're waiting for right now is the manifestations of that. Um, When people ask, because I'll get people, they're like, what can we do? And I'm like, well, you can organize. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are people out there doing the work so you don't have to do it all by yourself. Uh, Get involved. Get out. Um, I'm sure there are people with who never thought that they would be uh, activists, yet here they are because they see something in their community that they feel is either unjust or um, just damn well wrong and unfair. Uh, Anyway, that's enough of my um, whatever you choose to call it, my soapbox. Mm -hmm. So I will get off of it and then we'll move on to rant and receipts. And now we're on to rant and receipts, where Amy's going to start us off with. Well, so I have one that's uh, possibly a little inside baseball for law people, but is also, I think, of interest in general. So people kind of I think because this is this does sort of concern all of us as potential users of uh, legal services. So. Essentially, the Law Society of Ontario uh, in the last uh, little while uh, introduced something called a statement of principles that is now required of lawyers in Ontario uh, to kind of sign on to uh, as they do their annual reports with the Law Society. So to kind of make it a bit clearer, the Law Society is the self-governing uh, body of lawyers in Ontario. They re- they reg- were the re- they're the regulator, and they also provide the representation um, for like or, or, or are the vehicle for representing the the views of lawyers, sort of collectively in a sense, um, but regulate the profession: who's in, who's out. You know, disbarring people, setting the rules of conduct and ethics, setting the bar exam. Um, and taking our money, which is not insignificant. So mm-hmm. <laughs> taking our dues. Um, and for lawyers, we're actually exempt from uh, the Labor uh, Act. We're exempt from uh, some provisions of employment standards. So there's a lot of um, uh, protections that we don't have in other areas of law because we're part of a self-regulated profession, kind of like doctors are, are somewhat similar. So there are car mm-hmm. votes made for us. So what the Law Society does is like particularly important um, in uh, the context of, of, of you know, any lawyer's work. Um, you know, some of the things that they do is maintain the standards of continued education that you have to do every year so that you remain, you know, competent in, in your work, um, including issues around ethics. So you submit an annual report every year talking to the Law Society so that they can affirm that you remain in good standing. You know, a new approach that was introduced, as I said, recently um, coming from a recommendation from uh, a report uh, that was titled Challenges Faced by Racialized Licensees Working Group Final Report. Uh, one of the recommendations was to uh, ha- require that all licensees uh, to sign on to a statement of principles. So cre- 
it would require uh, licensees to write their own statement of principles that essentially says, what are you doing on diversity, inclusion, and accessibility um, as a purveyor of legal services, as someone who has the trust, who's, you know, a trust of the public, who's working with the public and also with, with colleagues and others. Um, so, so that's essentially what a statement of principles is. It's essentially like you create your own, you, that you can affirm and show that you're holding yourself to a, a certain standard. It's, so, um, it seems like, so you have a set of values that you abide by or a set of I'm assuming. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's it's like almost a diversity specific mission statement. Oh, almost. Okay. It, okay. It's essentially just a statement that would acknowledge your obligations, promote quality, diversity and inclusion in general um, and in your work with colleagues, employees, clients and the public. Um, it's pretty basic frankly there's a lot more the law society can do and require of <laughs> lawyers to actually advance those principles literally a simple statement by licensees or being called on to reflect on these principles is like the bare minimum but that has not stopped some lawyers from organizing around against it uh, so this year we have our bencher election so a bencher is a representative that sits in a thing called convocation which mm-hmm. is the body of all of the benchers representing lawyers and they make the they make up the rules they it's like the board of governors for the law society oh uh, so it's our democratically elected body they're elected they will be elected later this month mm-hmm. uh there's 40 positions 20 in toronto 20 outside of toronto it's 20 very, in toronto. it's very it's very strange um <laughs> the equanimity is blowing me I over mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, to be fair i think the math ad works out yeah 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 it's just you know it's kind of funny (laughs) there is essentially um i believe there's over 100 candidates and well over 100 candidates 70 running outside of toronto or vice versa so i mean it's it's a lot but you get 20 ballots to vote from and there's a slate of people who are um running on the stop the sop uh, stop the statement of principles uh, slate and essentially just trying to advance this idea that the law society cannot compel them uh, to make any statements of any kind and that this is a quote unquote form of forced speech um, that they're being forced to uh, engage in. And I, I uh, took a gander at some of the uh, uh, bi- biographies of some of these characters, one that really, uh, I find kind of humorous, um, you know, it's it just essentially um, folks really just kind of going off from the Magna Carta to the Declaration of oh, Independence, from the Gettysburg Address <laughs> to we will not surrender. Our shared history oh is one of sacrifice and struggle to see true justice prevail. And you're like, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? And this guy's <laughs> essentially just... I like, you know, it's it's kind of these like Jordan Peterson esque folks, you know, I believe in objective analysis. Oh, fuck off. Um, And you're just like just throwing all (laughs) this objective analysis. This is simply coercion (laughs) and compliance. But, you know, like anyway, these are the the types of characters, um, you know, let right prevail. Like these are their their policy points, Um, not offering to address any issues of actual equality. 
um, you know, but but from this place of, of very much defensiveness around forced speech. And I just want to say, like, remember, you're in a profession that forces you to, like, wear black wool robes to, like, appear in court and to address people in a certain way, um, whether but, whether opposing counsel or, you know, a ju- like justices. It's very defer- it's very deferential. It's very. um uh, to- like it's very much top down scripted colonial a colonial script that it you have to recite. Yeah. Um, you ma- you take an oath every time, y- like you take an oath to become a lawyer. You like swear, like people are swearing oaths left, right, and center. Um, you know you you're commissioning oaths of other people. Like it's you know you're um. Uh, what am, oh God, what's the expression? Anyway, I mean, you're an officer of the court and, and that in itself requires a lot of other limitations on how you speak, how you represent yourself and 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 uh, and all of these other things that are very much police to say nothing of what the rules of conduct um, of the law society also require of you. So just like it's a in, in and in some sense, it is a very regulated um, though, mind you, in some very antiquated and colonial ways, organization or, or body. And yet this is the thing that you're taking issue with. The, the one small statement that tries to at least turn your mind to some of the ways that our profession um, exclu- excludes or does not adequately represent certain people or challenges you to think about those things just merely once a year in an annual report so that people have, I don't know, a little bit more faith. I don't know anyone seeing any of these lawyers now who's going to feel, um, you know, better or safer about their interests in, in these people's hands, which are just, you know, uh, very, seems very self-interested and, and a very myopic view on what their roles as lawyers are. But... Um, but I, Amy, I just think the hypocrisy is really entertaining. But Amy, it's tradition. Yeah, well, <laughs> traditions have to start from somewhere. Y- yeah, yeah. Traditions <laughs> so. we're willing to uphold uh, <laughs> at the expense of all other forms of expression, except for new forms of expression, because they're new and they don't they're coming from racialized people. And we don't think that that matters. Like, that's essentially what this that is. is. It, it just goes to show whose voice matters, who. Um, you know, and if the law society backs down from this, we will know whose voice matters because basically what they're saying is, no, we're good. We're good. One of the things I mentioned um, at the panel I was at was I said, you know, diversity is not, it's okay. If you want to make it a moral issue, fine. You could do that on your own time, but you know, let's talk brass tacks, shall we? And then I didn't even go through an economic argument. I just mm. made the most basic argument of po- possible demographics. Mm. So, and then I brought up the Gillette commercial and I explained the Gillette commercial and I said, who do you think that commercial's for? It's not for, uh, it's not for baby boomers. It's not for millennials. It's for that generation Z who is going to be the most diverse generation of any nation's history, basically. So, well, I shouldn't say any nation. Canada and the U.S., let's say. So, in that, in that you know, vein, if you want to be a going concern, if you want to be a company that actually, you know, appeals to, you know, uh, the consumers, then you have to get with the program. You need to get with it. 
chop chop. You know, if the law society wants to drag their feet, well, good luck with that. I I just I'm not here to convince people that diversity is good. If you don't, if you want to debate me on that, then we need not be talking any any further. Like, don't give me that because. The thing is, what is the absence mm-hmm. of diversity and inclusion? You're going to have what? All white senior management and then all racialized workers? That's a fucking plantation. I don't I like I don't know what else to say. I also want to get away from us talking about these things in an individual way. And the individual way is I'm a good person. I would never do that. Or I'm a good person. I, I have the best intentions and then that's it. No, these things are structural. These things don't happen because like the lack of representation in, um, in uh, uh, a certain profession is deliberate. Mm-hmm. It's not by accident. Yeah, I it, mean, it's, it's deliberate in law specifically. It's, it's deliberate in so far as uh, education it's the education and access to law schools in itself is prohibitively exclusionary. Exactly. Um, So that reinforces who's coming in and who stays and in where they practice and the influence that they have is also, uh, is also why widely distorts, um, you know, who is actually, who, who does speak for and represent the, the losses, the legal community and who sticks around and doesn't um, exit or opt out of the profession because it becomes so prohibitive for them to participate. So I want to make uh, a TV show recommendation, speaking of legal aid and law, and there's a new CBC show called Digstown. And Digstown is, okay, so first of all, it has a black female lead. She is amazing in it. Um, and it's basically centers around a woman who, you know, was a big corporate lawyer and came back to her, for, to Halifax, because it's set in Nova Scotia, in Halifax, um, to work for legal aid. So I'm only on episode three, but it's a big recommendation for me. I think speaking of diversity and speaking of representation and what we see and what we're, we have access to, I think that this is one of those shows that kind of brings all of this together. And uh, bravo, CBC. And you won't be hearing me saying that a lot. So there you go. All right. My rent and receipts is... Oh, I was going to say Google, and I'm like, no, it's Microsoft, but they're all the same. Anyway, so a group of Microsoft employees um, appeared at an employee meeting with CEO Satya Nadella Thursday to protest the company's treatment of women. The protesters asked Nadella to address claims of discrimination against women in promotion and advancement, as well as claims of sexual harassment, raised as part of a widespread discussion that has been building steam on internal company forums for the past two weeks. Roughly 100 to 150 employees attended the Q&A session. Others watched live stream. It's not clear how many people were part of the protest, but some female and male employees at the event wore all white, inspired by the congresswomen who wore suffragette suffragette white to the State of the Union in February. 
In response to their concerns, Nadella was empathetic and expressed his sadness and disappointment, yada, yada, yada. He and chief people officer, there's a chief people officer? What? <laughs> yeah, this is... Like they're moving away from human resources. Okay. Right chief people, they need a new title. <laughs> like That's awful. Catherine Hogan promised employees additional transparency around advancement within Microsoft, according to a Microsoft employee who attended the meeting. Now, I would like to note that they didn't actually say they would re- be reviewing their promotions or any or or their process. They're just like, meh, we'll just show you a little bit of what's behind the curtain, which to me is no solution at all. But what's interesting is that, and I this is one of the, stories that we never got to talk about that I kind Mm -hmm. of wanted to talk about a lot. It just didn't fit into whatever. But on November 1st of last year, um, 20,000 Google employees walked off the job around the world to protest sexual harassment, gender inequality, and systemic racism. So... um, they follow they follow allegations of sexual misconduct made against senior executives, which organizers say are the most high profile examples of thousands of similar cases around the country. And they walked out again and they walked out again to protest. And I think this is in January um, forced arbitration which I know that we've talked about on this podcast and, you know, how prohibitive and silencing that is Mm -hmm. and how more and more companies are using Mm -hmm. it instead of the courts. Um, But the change will end Google's policy of forcing employees to litigate such disputes in arbitration where hearings are typically closed and the arbitrators are paid for by the company critics say arbitration allows sexual harassers to prey on multiple victims because of secrecy and google ended this forced arbitration last month so i mean sorry in february mm-hmm. um so number one prote- protesting works mm-hmm. uh organizing works because google really has a strong organizational like they have a strong organizing unit and employee um, activism unit within the company that stretches across the world. It's quite impressive. And you know what? They basically use Google tools to do it, (laughs) which I think is a nice extra slap in the face that I love. Um, But what I wanted to bring up here is that tech companies 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago were seen as the the new way of doing things kind mm-hmm. of like how Trudeau came in and said he was going to do politics differently mm-hmm. but didn't end up but ended up repeating the status quo uh, tech companies have basically done the same they got bigger they got entrenched and they got and they were probably already discriminatory because the people behind tech are just like white guys so um And well, not all white guys, but men. So, you know, what's 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 interesting to me about this story and about these particular types of stories. Number one, you know, if you like form a form a union or something, but also it's okay to organize 
network mm-hmm. is basically it mm-hmm. is basically mm-hmm. number one yeah absolutely um you're not uh you're not somehow breaking some loyalty <laughs> pact either you are literally fighting for your rights. What I also mm-hmm. loved about Google was that they fought for the rights. You had people who were full time and permanent who were fighting for the rights of temporary workers. Yeah. I thought it was wonderful. That's awesome. Um, maybe well, that's what collective voice allows you to do, right? Say that again, Amy. <laughs> I mean, I'm not actually going to do it because that's cheesy. But <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, and Microsoft... Um, as much as Buddy wants to be all sympathetic and mm-hmm. stuff, what the hell is he going to do about it? This will not end at Google and Microsoft. And if we want to know what it takes, this is what it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually poo-poo the idea of change from the inside, but this is really change from the inside. I, I, I like, what can I say? Um, I wouldn't call workers working together change from the inside. Okay. How so? Well, the inside is the institution itself. Right. It's not wor- like workers are ind- independent, can be independent of that. I I think that, you know, the Microsoft response is in- inadequate. Um, and they're usually seen mm-hmm. as the adult in the room of the tech companies. So they're they're older, they're more entrenched, whatever. Mm-hmm. And what this has shown us is that um, these structures of power repeat themselves even with new industries, even with a turnover of what the dominant industries are. Right. That this is an issue that goes beyond, again, the individual. It is a problem that is entrenched because that's the way, that's the way business is done. Mm-hmm. It's these misogynistic, uh, racist, you know, anti like Islamophobic structures. And so I guess the whole point of this is if you have problems at work, maybe start organizing. All right. So that's the end of our episode. Um, I'm going to read off all the ways you can get in touch with us. I have my paper ready. So catch us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bad and B podcast, Twitter at bad and bitchy, Instagram at bad and bitchy pod, email bad and B pod at gmail.com. Um, Contribute to our rabble rousing and uh, hit us up on patreon.com forward slash bad and bitchy. Until next time, look out for misogynist of the week later this week. Until next time. Bye. bye. bye.